All right, another good morning from me to you. We're glad you're with us here at Five Stones. Okay, turn with me to Joshua chapter 21 and 22. We're turning the corner in our series here. We're going to be completing it in three weeks. Um, I'll be sharing on chapter 22. John will be sharing on chapter 23 next week, and then I'll bring the final message, chapter 24. And so, Pastor John last week uh, took us through a blitz of 10 chapters regarding the, the final distribution of the land of the 12 tribes of Israel. We've been learning in-depthly how God has led Joshua and the people um, of Israel uh, to this little spot on planet Earth. And if we were to overlay a, a map of present-day Israel, we would see that this is very much still a part of ongoing history, ongoing current events. And were it not for Joshua bringing the people in, we would not have the nation of Israel from which Jesus came, and we would not have Christianity. So the Jewish people are so, so crucial, so pivotal uh, to the plan of God. And so as you see in this beautiful colored map here, the different tribes uh, that settled into their different positions in the land. And the, the primary demarcation here is the Jordan River, which just runs from north to south, from the Sea of Galilee all the way down to the Dead Sea. For those of you that have been studying the life of Jesus in the Gospels, we know that much of his life and ministry began up there in the Sea of Galilee, and he would travel down to Jerusalem on occasion um, and then go back up and ministered in this whole area. But as we see here settled, we see two primary uh, groupings of the nation. We've got the tribes that are on the east side of the Jordan River, Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh, and then we've got the nine and a half tribes on the west side. And so um, this morning we're going to be touching on the address that Joshua gives to the tribes uh, to the east of the Jordan. I'm going to be touching on that uh, at the end of my message. But I want to pick up this thread from Joshua chapter 21, the last two verses. And uh, this is a summary of all that has happened through the nation. It says, The Lord gave Israel all the land which he had sworn to give to their fathers, and they possessed it and lived in it. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, according to all that he had sworn to their fathers. And not, uh, no one of all their enemies stood before them. The Lord gave all their enemies into their hand. Not one of the good promises which the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. And so I was thinking about this, this phrase here, not one of those good promises came to pass. And, and which one of these good promises was the most glorious promise? And I think we have to go all the way back to the beginning when God first spoke to Moses and said, I'm going to deliver you. Uh, I'm going to use you to be a deliverer to bring the people out of Egypt. And so we read this in Exodus 3 as Moses was before the burning bush and receiving just the commission to do this amazing thing in terms of releasing the people from the hand of Pharaoh. The Lord said, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have, been given, and have given heed to their cry because of their task masters, for I'm aware of their suffering. So I've come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey. Of course, these are words of great hope. The people of Israel had been in bondage for almost 400 years, and now the deliverer was coming. So before I get into it, let me just pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We pray that grace would continue to flow in our midst we thank you for your truth. We thank you for the spirit of truth. Let it impact our hearts deeply. In the name of Jesus, amen. So this morning, I want to talk about enjoying God. 
Because that's what reaching our promised land is all about. It's about reaching a destination where we get to rest and settle and be fulfilled. It's that place where God brings us and we feel content and satisfied. There's no better place to be. It's akin to coming home after a long trip and maybe you closed a big business deal or maybe you came home from a great vacation and as wonderful as those moments were, there's nothing like coming back to home. It's the best place to be. Now that's not to mention what it's like if you've never had a home like the Israelis who were there under the taskmaster, living in the heat and the oppression of his rule. And all of a sudden Moses comes and says, I'm going to take you to this place. I'm going to move you back to the promised land. And so for 80 years, 40 years in the desert and 40 years in taking the land, the Israelites are working hard to come into their promise. Maybe they were thinking back to the prophecy that was given to their father Abraham. And, and Abraham had first put his feet in this land. And so now the Jewish people are saying, we're coming back to the place of our fathers. And then after they enter in and, and we've seen this beautiful map of of owning now this land, they've come back. And the intensity of that moment, the joy, the tears, the, the breathless wonder, the sense of just being speechless, we are here. This is the place that's flowing with milk and honey. And it isn't like God to speak of enjoyment in such a practical and vivid way because this is a food metaphor, right? Milk and honey. And we're all food lovers, it's like saying to Asians, I'm taking to the land of beef noodle soup and congee. <laughs> or to Italians, you're going to arrive in the land of cappuccino and tiramisu. Or to Americans, you're going to the land of a juicy hamburger and fries. It literally spurns you on. You go, yeah, I, I want to get there. It's so interesting how human nature works and the things that, that motivate us. And just the idea of something tasty and delectable. Yeah, I want to go for that. It's the best. Now, in the story of Joshua, we see God's genius and how he works through history to paint a picture of a spiritual truth. And the parallel here for us is that the same way, in the same way that the Israelites came into the promised land in that literal, physical, geographical sense and entered into the deep enjoyment of God, so you as a new covenant Christian are destined for your promised land. Hebrews chapter 4 interprets the Old Testament for us. You know, one of the great things about the New Testament is that it opens up and explains for us all the foreshadowing that God placed in the Old Testament. The Bible is one harmonious whole. And one of the, the great ways in which we study the Bible is to understand the Bible interprets the Bible. The Bible sheds light on the Bible. It's the best interpreter. And so now in the New Testament, Paul is looking back and he's looking at this whole Joshua passage that we are studying, the exact same book that we're looking at, the Apostle Paul also studied. And he wrote this for us in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 11. Let us therefore make every effort to enter into that rest. Or in the ESV, it says, let us strive therefore to enter into that rest. So he's getting insight. He's getting another picture. He's getting a parallel understanding of what God was doing. In many ways, the writers of the New Testament were just getting a download from the Holy Spirit and understanding, now in spiritual depth, what it is that God was doing through history and in the Jewish people. So when Paul says here, let us strive, 
to enter in that rest, he's saying just as the Israelites had to contend for their promised land and fight for it, so we must do the same with our promised land. Now we've gone through the different battles, we've gone through the, the different tension points where they had to have faith, where they had to trust God, where they had to obey God. You too have to go through the same thing. Part of the joy of our journey is not living vicariously through someone else. It's that we ourselves have our own story. We ourselves get to come up here and testify, God did this in my life. That's what makes it so powerful. So the writer of Hebrews is saying that the promised land is a picture of rest, but not just physical rest. Rest for our souls, fulfillment and fatness of soul. There's so much anxiety and stress on the inside. We can look like we're great on the outside, but do we have rest in our souls? Do we have that fulfillment? Are we experiencing a leanness in our soul, or do we feel deeply enriched? Paul in this verse is equating the promised land to divine contentment and divine satisfaction. I'm deeply satisfied. Now, this is wonderful. This is great news. And when we talk about our promised land in this New Testament sense, there are two kinds of promised land that I want to talk about this morning. The first is that uh, that first promised land that's pictured for us relates to our personal destiny. God created each one of us for a purpose and for a mission. We're familiar with this very famous verse from Jeremiah chapter 29 where God says through the prophets to the Israelites, I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. And a lot of times we don't keep in mind the context. We sort of use it as an inspirational thing for us, and it is inspirational. But when the prophet spoke it, he was speaking to the Israelites that were in Babylon. They were exiled. They were outside of the land. They did not know what their future was going to be. They didn't know if they're going to lose their national identity. They didn't know if they're going to just come apart as a Jewish people and just assimilate. But the prophet said, listen, I know the plans that I have for you. I'm going to keep you together, and it's going to be a plan that will bring you to a future and a hope. These were words that encouraged their souls greatly. And do you know why Jeremiah had such conviction about this verse? It's because God himself told Jeremiah when he was still a teenager, he said in chapter 1, verse 5, before, God's speaking now, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated to you. He is a planner. I know the plans that I have for you. He's not chaotic and all over the place. You are in the heart of God, the mind of God. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. You're not an accident. And there are no oopsies in God. Now, I don't care if you're called to be famous or anonymous. Every one of you has a call that's significant and precious to God. Let me use a cooking analogy again. If someone eats a, a fantastic steak and they just drool over and they say, oh my gosh, this is an amazing steak. It's so juicy and tender and flavorful. It's got the right sizzle on it and the right grill marks on it. It just slices perfectly. And the eater is enthusing over how great the meat is. But think of what it took to make that steak taste so good. It took salt, and pepper, and seasoning, sauces, the right temperature, a skillet, the right grill, a spatula, a knife, a cutting board. And everyone talks about the meat 
But what if you were the spice? Or what if you were the pan? Or what if you were the element that the pan sat on? Or the cutting board? Or the saran wrap that covered the meat while it was being marinated? Does anyone talk about how great those parts are? But they're all part of what made the meat so good. Don't ever think that just because your role is hidden or unnoticed or seemingly small that you are insignificant because you are not. You have a design and purpose from God and you finding that and walking in it is your first promised land. I don't care if you're called to be an astronaut or a pipe fitter. Everything you do matters and everything you do brings glory to God. In that classic movie, Chariots of Fire, which talks about this runner that's gifted, but he's also a missionary. And in the end, he ends up in the Olympics. And there's this beautiful scene in which as he's running, he talks about, he says, when I run, I feel his pleasure. That actually is deep theology. It's not just emotion coming out. It's deep theology. It's promised land theology. When I walk in that which I'm created for, I'm most alive in God. I love watching the Nature Channel, particularly National Geographic. And you look at the variety that's in nature, birds and lizards and polar bears and little inchworms, and you see different biomes and different environments, and you go, my goodness, there, there's such variety in what God has done, and every single one of them is walking in that which they're created for. If you're a fish, you feel most alive when you're swimming in the ocean or in the river or in a pond. But if you try to fly like a bird, you will be frustrated your entire life. You're fighting God's very purpose and design. If you're an eagle or a hawk or a hummingbird or a blue jay, you're most alive flying in the air, soaring through the skies. And if you try to swim, you will frustrate your soul to no end. That's not promised land living. That is a death cycle. And that's not how we enjoy God. You think about Tabitha in the book of Acts. And how there's this powerful episode of Peter coming to pray for her. She gets raised from the dead. But the thing that just tickles my heart, the Bible says that she was most alive making garments. The reason why Peter came to pray for her is because all her friends came and they were weeping. said, Peter, you must come and pray for Tabitha. She just is such a doer of kindness. And look at all the garments that she's sewn for us. She felt most alive just making those garments. I think about Lydia the famous Philippian church that was planted. Paul responded to this vision from the Holy Spirit, come over to Macedonia. And so Paul and his comrades, as they went over to Macedonia, they ended up in this city called Philippi. They don't know what's going to happen, but as they go down to the riverside, the Bible says there's this woman, Lydia, whose heart was open as Paul shared. And here's the description of Lydia. She was a seller of purple fabrics. She was an entrepreneur. She loved being at Michael's. That was the most favorite place for her to be. This is real stuff. I'm most alive when I'm at Michael's. I'm most alive when I'm doing what God created me to do. Amos, who's one of the minor prophets, and we're going to do a series starting in January about the minor prophets. The Bible describes him as a grower of sycamore trees. He loved being in the grove. He loved tending to the branches. He loves seeing these mighty trees grow up. Sycamore trees are some of the biggest trees on planet Earth. And yet God called him to be this prophet. And yet that sweet spot for him was just being there, working the dirt, 
watering the trees and seeing them come up. Colossians chapter 1 tells us God's heart towards his will. The Apostle Paul, speaking to different congregations, wanting to release them and help them come into freedom, he said, I pray and I ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. God wants to fill you up with the understanding of what you're called to do in life, what your purpose is, in all wisdom and understanding, all the details, when, where, how, with whom, how it's going to be done. He wants to give you all those details. Too often we feel like we're just searching for a needle in the haystack, but that's not God's heart. His heart is to fill you with that knowledge so you can experience your promised land and you can walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work. There is nothing better than feeling like, you know what, I'm making a difference. I sowed that thing and I gave it to that wife that, that has only three kids and she can't afford any clothes and I gave it to her and she was so glad. I'm so glad that I get to grow these trees and kids get to play under them and enjoy them. There's fruit that comes out of it and out of that fruit, comes enjoyment. I quoted Jeremiah 29, 11, but have you ever noticed what it says in the two verses that follow? God says that if you call upon me and come and pray to me, I will listen to you. God's a listening God. If you seek me, you will find me. Does that sound familiar? Jesus said that in the Sermon on the Mount. He was thinking about Jeremiah's words right here. If you seek me, you'll find me. And when you search for me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. He wants us to find him. He's not trying to hide his will from you. And the way God's will works in our life is just very natural, very organic, little by little. Yes, there's moments where just the heavens open and we just see what it is that God has. But those little steps of faith, God's speaking to our heart. Lighting your path as you go. I shared two weeks ago how petrified I was to be a pastor. I was the least likely to succeed. But that was my own interpretation of myself. I didn't understand my design. I didn't have an awareness of who I was in Jesus Christ. I didn't understand that there was a promised land that God was bringing me into. I thought that promised land was going to be in science. But no, God redirected me. There was a course correction. I didn't know myself. But as I obeyed God, I could have never imagined the joy and the thrill of being a pastor, of doing things and accomplishing and experiencing things that I could have never imagined. Now, after nearly 30 years in ministry, I've preached to thousands. I've seen people get healed of chronic diseases, cancer and diabetes. I've seen hundreds of people get saved. I've seen people in my congregation here and elsewhere become millionaires. I won't tell you who they are. I've seen disciples become megachurch pastors. I've seen singles get married to the person of their dreams. I prophesied to pop stars and award-winning actors and singers. And I've traveled over a million miles for the gospel. Sometimes I get upgraded to first class because of it. So I'm sitting there in first class and go, what? H how did I get here? Because of these little steps of following God. 
I couldn't bought myself into first class, and now here I am in first class. And now I don't have to leave Mimi behind. I get to bring Mimi with me because we're empty nesters. 20-some years, she's watched the kids and had to stay behind. Now I'm in a new season. I get to take her with me. You know, as an aside, I, I've been feeling empty nester guilt. Mimi came home a little while ago with a mini tub of crab dip from Costco. And I was just digging in. I had about seven or eight chips, and then I decided I had to stop. Because my instinct was I have to, you know, save some and share it with the rest of the family. And, and Mimi looked at me. She goes, why are you stopping? I go, yeah, I don't need to stop. <laughs> so I kept going. I kept going and just polished off half of this little tub of crab dip. I mean, 25 years, my instinct was to just think about portioning things out. My kids would put on their, you know, leftovers in the refrigerator. Don't eat this. There's a, a territorialness to that whole thing. But now I just get to enjoy this new chapter. And if that's not enough, I have you as a spiritual family, as a community after we started this church. We left Minneapolis, came here, didn't know a single person. We didn't have a group that we're coming to. And how has God done this? How in the world did it all happen? How did I come into this charmed life? Through God. And it's just not my story, it's your story. God is a total blast. There's nothing like him. And this is enjoying life at the highest because it's enjoying God. You know, left to myself, I might have had a nice career as a scientist, but God said, no, your path is not as a scientist. You're going to be a pastor in New Westminster, Canada. This is literally my promised land. Isn't it amazing? This is where the milk and honey is. This is where you're going to have bubble tea and curry dishes and Tim Hortons. Yeah, bring it on. But to get here, I had to overcome fears and difficulties and giants in my life. I had to battle. I had to persevere. It wasn't a walk in the park. That's why Hebrew says, strive to enter in. Isn't it a funny juxtaposition of two words, rest and strive? I mean, it should be like, if you're going to rest, then just rest. You know, strive, just strive, but strive to enter in. There's something about the inner life. There's something about our destiny that requires us to put forth effort, to not be lazy, to be passionate, work for it, fight for it, and die trying if you must because there's nothing more noble or valuable and meaningful than your calling God. Just read Hebrews chapter 11, particularly the last few verses, and read about those that literally died trying to enter their promised land. They're heroes in God's eyes. And where is this brand of Christianity today? It's right here, right in front of me. It's you. You all have a promised land to enter into from God. Then there's a second promised land. And this is better than the first one, if you can believe it. Our first promised land is our purpose in life. Our second promised land is experiencing the fullness of Jesus. John 17, 3. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. When the verse here quotes the word life, this is not biological life or bios life. 
It's not just physical life as we live when we get up and brush our teeth and go to work. And just come. That's not just biological life. This is, in the Greek, it's called zoe life. It's God's life. It's continuous, perpetual. It's eternal. It's without fail. The glory doesn't fade. This is a life that only God can give. And there's so many imposters and imitators out there trying to woo us to it as if they can give life. There's so much false advertising and false hope and false bill of goods that are being sold to us, and we fall for it for fear of missing out. Did you know that fear of missing out was at the core of the fall? The enemy came to Eve and said, if you don't eat of the fruit of this tree, you won't be this. So the enemy plays on our fear that we're going to miss out on a greater pleasure when in fact the greater pleasure is in God. And we need to preach that to ourselves and speak that to ourselves over and over again so we don't become conformed to the deception that's out there. There is such an assault against the truth. There is such an assault against the gospel. We need to stand up. We need to preach it to ourselves and we need to preach it to one another. Now why is this promised land, this inner promised land, the highest form of enjoyment? Well, in 1 John, 3 John, pardon me, chapter 1, verse 2, the apostle says, Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things. God wants us to be successful and to flourish and, and to enjoy and have good things and be in good health. But here's the key phrase, just as your soul prospers. That's the reference point. The most important thing to God is that your soul prospers and that your soul flourishes. In the Old Testament, the word shalom means a total, complete flourishing. Not just a part of the garden, but the entire garden flourishing. And so the Bible puts that priority on inner blessing. May your external blessing match your inner blessing. Now, don't get me wrong. Outer blessings are great, but inner blessing is greater. We don't have to live a good life with nice cars and nice clothes and big salary to enjoy God deeply. In fact, those things can actually get in the way. You can be the poorest person in the world and be the happiest person around. This came home to me so clearly when I was traveling into China and working with the house church leaders. And these are great heroes of the faith. They're like the Pauls of our time, humble and unknown, but doing great things for the Lord, being in prison, on the run, persecuted, suffering. And yet they have such joy. I was in a van one time with some of these leaders and they were leading a movement of 10 million people and the only asset that they had was this 10-passenger van, 12-passenger van. And we were out in the countryside and it was pouring rain, got stuck in the mud and they would jump out of the bus and just you know, push it out of the mud. We got into the city and we were turning this corner. It was just pouring rain and we just completely drenched these bicycle riders that were on the street. And they said, we baptize you in the name of Jesus. <laughs> I just thought, it was so great. These men have nothing, and yet they have everything. They knew how to enjoy that promised land on the inside. We can all enjoy God to the fullest, no matter what station in life, no matter what cards you have been dealt. In fact, we can all be living in individual revival. There's nothing holding you back from God. 
getting closer to him, growing more intimate, understanding his heart. We may not be in corporate revival, and we're praying for corporate revival. We need a revival, don't we? The church needs to revive. Our city needs to be revived. Our country needs to be revived. We need a move of God. We need a massive reset that can only come by the Holy Spirit. That's why we need to pray. That's why we need to fast. That's why we need to seek Him. But independent of a corporate move of God, we can all experience personal revival because we all have our own promised land to enter into, which is Jesus. Now, Hebrew goes on to tell us more about this inner promised land, the depth of the rest and contentment and enjoyment that God has for us. Hebrews chapter 4, the writer tells us that God wants us to experience day seven blessing. What does that mean? We're talking about the creation story and how on day seven, the Bible says God rested from his works. So the verse says here, for he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day that God rested on the seventh day from all his works. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. As in not just one day a week, but a continuous sense of being in rest. For the one who has entered his rest, God's rest, has himself also rested from his own works as God did from his. So we have this picture, God working six days, and on the seventh day, he rests. And, and, and the writer's saying, listen, that's what I'm jealous for. Not that you go to a spa. Not that you go to some beach. Not that you go to some faraway place and, and just recharge. No, there is a deeper, another kind of world rest that's available to you as pictured in day seven. Think about the satisfaction that God must have had after imagining and planning and then creating the ecosystems, the animal kingdoms, the galaxies, the Milky Way, the Swiss Alps, the Himalayas, the gorgeous Mediterranean Sea, down to the inchworm and the ostrich and the bean plants and the porcupines, and then devising a system of rain and wind and clouds to water the earth, and sunrises and sunsets. Six days. And then on the seventh day, he got to sit back and rest, take it all in. Not a single sunrise, not a single sunset is the same always original, always creative, always pulsating with life. And as he just rested and, and absorbed it all, there was a sense of deep soul nourishing enjoyment. That's what it's like to experience Jesus as your promised land. He is our joy, our peace, our rock, our sustenance, our stability, our hope, our strength, our glory, our comfort. He's our savior. He's our stronghold. He is our everything and our forever. Can it get any better than that? Why wouldn't we want this life? Who wouldn't want to come into the promised land and enjoy God like this? Interestingly, our sinful nature doesn't want it. We don't want the walk of faith. We don't want to obey God. We want to rely on ourselves and follow our own passions and idols. We'd rather be slaves in Egypt where we can eat our leeks and onions than trudge through the desert and fight the giants so that we can come into a better place. Part of how we relate actually to the story of Joshua and the journey of 
the Israelites is all the complaining and moaning that, the, we, that they went through. We, we, we go, oh my gosh, how could, they, how could they turn their backs on God after he split the Red Sea? How could they turn their backs on God after he provides manna for them morning after morning? How could they turn their backs on him after he split the rock and the water comes out? Wake up! But in one sense, we're speaking to ourselves because we do the exact same things. God backs us, he blesses us, we turn our back on him, and we go do our own thing. We don't want Jerichos. We don't want Ahaz. We don't want Gilgals. We don't want Jordan crossings in our life. Our sinful nature prefers the world because we think the world has so much more to offer. That's called unbelief. That's a stronghold. That's a way of life. That's a Philistine mindset that's out there. Hebrews 3. As the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness. They always go astray in their hearts, and they do not know my ways. Okay, get this again. The writer of Hebrew is studying the exact same passages as us. He's writing the commentary for us. He's saying, don't be like the Jews who are constantly testing God, and they harden their hearts. Verse 11 as I, God, swore my wrath, they shall never enter my rest, my promised land. There was a whole generation, as we know, that died in the desert because of their unbelief, and they did not enter in. Therefore, take care that there not be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. So we have a choice. We can choose unbelief or we can choose trust. Unbelief keeps us out of the promised land, but trust is what leads us into it. And of course, in that decision, the writer of Hebrews is exhorting us towards faith. And how do we keep unbelief out of our lives, out of our hearts, out of our attitudes? He explains it for us in chapters 3 and 4. And I'll just touch on these quickly. The first is that we need to stay in community. We need to stay in a place where we're protected and kept in a place of passion towards God. Chapter 3, verse 13, particularly the first part there, it says, encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called today. In other words, this is a current thing that we need to do. This is a lifestyle thing that we need to do. We shouldn't say to ourselves, okay, tomorrow I'm going to do it. No, today is the day to be in community. Today is the day to encourage one another. And we can't encourage one another unless we are in community, doing life together one with another. You all know, and I have known, and John has known, particularly if we've been in pastoral ministry all these years, there is a simple principle. The moment you begin dissociating and not being around other believers, you will start getting cold in your faith. It just happens. But we're to encourage one another lest we be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The deceitfulness of sin is always working. Paul says it's a mystery of the power of the air. There's something in the atmosphere, and it's a not a good atmosphere, and it's always trying to woo you away from God and to deceive you. We are in the minority. Do you know we have minority status as Christians? That means we've got to be strong. 
That means we have to be just like the Israelites who went into the land and saw all the giants and said, how are we going to overcome them? We can in ourselves, but through the Spirit of God and through that inner strength that comes from Jesus, we will be able to enter in. But it requires community. We also see here another important element to keeping unbelief out is the Word of God. The Word of God is living and active. It's not an academic book. It's not a textbook. It's not a dead document. It's alive because the Spirit of God lives in it. Every time you come to the Word of God, God wants to speak to you. He wants to stir you. And there is a piercing quality about the Bible. It says piercing as far as the divisions of soul and spirit of joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Oh, we are tricky people. We know how to say things to people, but that's not really what's in our heart. We can fake people out, but you know what? You can't fake the Word of God out. You cannot fake the Spirit of God out. He knows what's really in your heart. And as you come to the Scriptures and as you read it, the Holy Spirit will use it like a sword, a two-edged sword. No matter what direction the Word goes, it will cut in in the proper way. Like a skilled surgeon, cutting away the disease, cutting away the fat, and making sure just the right things stay in place. We need the Word of God. That's why we talk about literacy. That's why we talk about orthodoxy. That's why we talk about being in Bible study with one another. It's part of how you keep the weeds of unbelief out of your heart. Hebrews 4.16, Paul says that we, as Christians, have the privilege of drawing near with confidence to the throne of grace. It's the grace of God that works in us. Everything is from him and through him and to him. So here's a little secret about Christianity. There's only one Christian, Jesus Christ. You are not required to be like a Christian. You're only required to allow Jesus to live through you. That means yielding. It's the grace of God that forms and conforms us to be like him. In our own strength, we've all tried, right, with our own might and strength to be like Jesus and to be kind and to be patient and be loving. And the next thing you know, you're swearing at the guy on the highway and giving him hand signals. That's not like Jesus. Only Jesus in us and his grace flowing through us that can transform us and change us. That's why Christianity is not a self-help religion. That's why Christianity is not legalism where we preach rules. It's about the grace of God. And when the grace of God is flowing in us, by default, it's going to shut out unbelief. Last element that we see here from Hebrews 4, verse 11 is obedience. We have to be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall through following the same example of disobedience. The way we activate truth is that we actually have to do it. It's not enough to just come and to hear, to feel good about what you hear. You actually have to do it. Oh, man, I'm going to read this instruction about how to be a great basketball player. I'm going to learn how Michael Jordan dunked. I'm going to learn about how Steph Curry dribbles the ball. But you never go on the court and actually do it. You'll never become a basketball player just by reading about being a basketball player. You actually have to get on the court and do it. Likewise, you will not be a Christian unless you actually do it. Just like going to McDonald's will not make you a hamburger, coming to church will not make you a Christian. You actually have to walk it out. Right? 
And if you don't walk it out, the unbelief will just continue to grow. And we lose out on the promised land. So let's put a positive spin to this and say, okay, Pastor Rich, I'm doing these things and I am killing it. Like I am enjoying Jesus. Praise the Lord. That's what every pastor wants to hear. But there's a cautionary tale for us about promised land living. And it comes from the back half of chapter 22 in Joshua. And I need to mention this before we close. And here's the cautionary lesson. That as God blesses us, we start forgetting him in the midst of that favor. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, Moses being the great prophet that he is, already foresaw a time that when the Jews got into the promised land, they would be so taken with the blessings that they would start forgetting him. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God, and when you have eaten and are satisfied and have built good houses and lived in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply, your silver and gold multiply, and all that you have multiplies. I mean, we are talking just massive outbreak of blessing. Everything you have multiplies. Your stock portfolio, your salary, your bonuses, everything is just bulging. Then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God. Being who we are, we just get taken up with the things of this world. And as Joshua blessed the tribe of Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh, so in chapter 22, he's speaking to these two and a half tribes. He says, go, enjoy your inheritance. Go to your tents. In verse 8, Joshua literally said to them, return to your tents with great riches and with very much livestock and silver and gold and bronze and iron and with many clothes. Divide the spoil with your brothers. Man, they are just going to really enjoy God. But as they cross over the Jordan to take up their place, the Bible says a report comes to the tribe west. As the brothers go back over, all of a sudden word comes that they are building a large altar. And so this is going to turn into a national crisis. Here's sort of an artist's rendition of what that altar looked like. It was very visual. When you crossed over to the Jordan, you would see this thing. It's like, what in the world is this? And so the tribes on the west side of the Jordan were saying, our brothers have broken away from the faith and they're already intent on serving other gods. They're using the Jordan River as a barrier between us and them and they're going to go and follow after the Canaanite gods. So all the tribes west of the Jordan, they assemble themselves for war, as it says in verse 12, and they cross over to confront their eastern brothers. And here's what it says in verse 16. Again, you can follow along with me in your Bibles. What is this unfaithful act which you have committed against God of Israel, turning away from following the Lord this day by building yourselves an altar to rebel against the Lord? Okay, so this is an intervention on a national level. Guys, you are screwing up. What are you doing with this altar? God has just blessed you, and now you're turning your heart away from him. And then the conversation that occurs between the two sides is just beautiful. 
Because Reuben and Gad and Manasseh, they say, we have built this altar out of concern and for a reason. In time, it may be that your sons on the west side of the Jordan may say to our sons on the east side of the Jordan, what have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord made the Jordan a border between us and you. Your sons, Reuben and Gad, you have no portion in the Lord. So your sons may make our sons stop fearing the Lord. So the eastern tribes are saying, we fear that all the tribes on the other side are going to say, you know what, guys, you're not part of us. You're not part of the family. So just stay over there and do your own thing. So actually opposite to what the western tribes thought, the eastern tribes erected this altar as a witness to say to the western tribes and to themselves, we are one family. We are together in this. Don't ever say historically or down in the generations after we pass away that we are not one because we have installed this altar as a witness that God has brought us together. Praise the Lord, the crisis was averted. The blessings of God, the silver, the gold, the livestock did not turn Reuben and Gad and Manasseh away from him. In fact, they built that altar as a witness to God's blessing. So here's the point for us to remember. God's blessing can be so overwhelming, so overflowing, so generous that we end up loving the blessings more than the blesser. I think that's what's happening in this country. We've forgotten the blesser. It's incredible that God would even risk this, that he would be so generous, he would so big heart be so big-hearted that we would be caught up with the gifts instead of the giver. So our assignment as we come into our promised land is to never allow the blessings to overtake or overshadow the blesser. If we do that, we're good. And that's how we properly enjoy God. We all have a double blessing to enter into. Our personal calling and experiencing Jesus. And David understood that. That's why he wrote in Psalm 34, 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. Have you ever thought about Christianity as enjoying God as opposed to rules and religion and rigidity? This is the true picture of what our faith is about. It's about coming to this amazing, powerful God and enjoying him and just partaking of the land and the lines that he has given to us. Father, we come before you right now. We thank you that you have poured out your glory upon us. You love us so much, just as a mom and dad love their children and just explode in their hearts with love, so you explode with love for us. And you want us to enjoy a broad and spacious place. And you want to pour out extravagantly blessings upon us. And Lord, we receive them and we walk in them. But our greatest prize is Jesus Christ himself. He's the one that gives us all of eternity. He blesses us in our times now and in the time to come. And maybe you're here today and you're thinking and you're processing. You realize this is a Jesus I haven't heard about before. This is a God that I haven't heard about before. And your heart is feeling pulled and you want to become a follower. You want to become a Christian. 
then I invite you to do it today. I invite you to just open your heart and say, Jesus, come into my heart and take up residence in my life. Be my promised land. Be my Savior and be my Lord. If that's in your heart, you can just take a moment and write it down in our Connect card. Just drop it into our box so that I can be in contact with you. Father, for those of us that have felt any kind of heaviness, any kind of weariness in the journey, I pray you lift it from us, that your encouragement would come upon us, that we would surely enjoy, Father God, the choicest parts of the land. And I pray for personal revivals, God, to hit us in this church. We give you thanks now in Jesus' name. Amen.